So reading from Psalm 51 uh, to Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I will bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Two months ago, almost at the day, a surgeon in Baltimore, USA, performed the first successful transplant of a pig's heart, genetically modified, into that of a human body, uh, that of 57-year-old David Bennett, who apparently was unable to receive a human heart for whatever reason. Uh, you could, of course, say that the true success of this procedure is yet to be determined, but I think eight weeks is, is pretty good in the world of medical science and, and certainly people have high hopes. And so many doctors are starting to wonder, you know, whether this means organs on demand for human beings, especially for those who don't qualify for human transplantation. I personally uh, can't help observing, I guess, the irony that the, the same animal whose delicious bacon strips could well cause heart problems might also help and, and provide hearts that can fix those problems. It's a little bit ironic. But we'll see what happens. Pig's hearts aside, for decades now, heart transplants have been saving thousands of lives every year. Uh, it's incredible science. Amazing. That somebody whose heart is failing, whose heart is dying, can be given a relatively new heart and another chance of life. You might have heard Christianity being likened to a heart transplant before. Uh, in fact, we even mentioned it last week, how God removes our old, sin-corrupted heart and gives us a new, pure heart. How He replaces our old, dying life and gives us Christ's new, eternal life. 
Psalm 51 reveals this reality, I think, in a beautiful song of repentance and confession. It is uh, the expansion of David's confession from 2 Samuel 12 verse 13 where he says simply to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. After he's confronted about his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. That's the story that we looked at last week. Last week as we considered David's human solution to sin and how it made things worse and worse and worse. But this week, as we look at this psalm, we consider the proper godly response to sin, which is repentance. Repentance. And really, I think this psalm shows us what repentance is, what it looks like. And of course, how it is completely and utterly a matter of the heart. So what is repentance? That's the question this morning. What is repentance? Well, firstly, repentance is an ownership of sin. You know, if you are on the wait list for a heart transplant, there's one thing that you've done already. You have owned up to the fact that your heart's condition is problematic, that it's failing, that you need radical intervention, something to fix it. Whether it's a genetic disease or a functional failure, you've accepted this reality that something drastic has to be done. And so it goes for our spiritual hearts. You have to acknowledge that they are sinful before you can have them fixed. You have to own your sin. Jonathan Edwards Edwards once said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. That is every good thing in your life is grace. It is a gift from God. The only thing that we really own from the beginning, that we're really entitled to, is sin. This is why David says in verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful even from the time my mother conceived me. Right from the time that the cells began to divide, there was sin. Well before I exited the womb, there was sin. It is a part of my very DNA. And this is one of our core church doctrines. Uh, What we call original sin or total depravity. That is that we cannot not sin. It is a part of our makeup. It's not just the things that we do. It is who we are. You can no more choose to stop sinning in your life than you can choose to stop your blood from flowing. As we considered last week, sin, it corrupts our thoughts, it corrupts our desires, it corrupts our actions, it corrupts our attitudes, it corrupts our emotions, everything. It's why there will always be wars in this world. It's why there will always be division and death. Because, as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Beyond cure. It's doomed. It is dead in the water. As we read from Ephesians 2 before, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually kaput. And dead people cannot do a single thing about their state. Can they? It's all over. 
So I want to ask at this point, do you own your sin? You know how you own the clothes that you're wearing today or the car that you drove here in and you sort of refer to them as my clothes or it's my car? Do you own your sin that way? It's my sin. It belongs to me. You know how you think of your money as yours because you earned it. You worked for it. By the way, it's not yours. It's a a gift from God. But do you think of your sin that way as well, as yours because you earned it and the death that goes with it? You know how you feel perhaps entitled to your job or your family? Or a nice house in the suburbs, or perhaps just a peaceful existence, which you're not, by the way, it's all grace. But do you feel that sense of entitlement about your sin and the resulting death? Because it's actually the only thing you are entitled to. And see, our sinful hearts cause us to lay claim to everything around us except the one thing that's actually ours which is sin itself. Owning it is essential. Will you own it? The psalm reveals this reality in the innate, from birth, nature of our sin, but also in who our sin is against. That it's against God. Verses 3 and 4, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Remember we talked about in the sight of God last week? So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Joseph says something really similar when he's uh, fleeing from the seduction of Potiphar's wife. He talks there a bit about how, you know, how Potiphar's a good master and he's treated him with respect and he's risen up through the ranks. But then he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing And sin against, not Potiphar, but God. Because all sin is against God. Because it's a rejection of Him. It's a rejection of His creation order. It's a rejection of His relationship and and His fatherhood. It's a rejection of His help and His redemption. And so this brings me to the second point this morning, that repentance is about confession, but that within relationship. In fact, you can't really have confession outside of relationship. I think it's one of the big problems of the Catholic system. You go into this booth and you don't even see the priest. There's this kind of veiled thing there. And it's like you're just confessing to a blank wall. But it's supposed to be about relationship. Because all sin is against God, He's the one that we need to talk to. He's the one that we deal with. He is the one we confess to. If you cheat on your spouse and you sin against them that way, it's not enough to feel sorry about it or to regret what you've done. You have to confess it, don't you? You know, if they find out one day and and confront you and you say, well, I felt sorry and, you know, what I resolved, you know, to do it differently. You haven't dealt with the sin. There's still this huge gap in the relationship. Confession is is missing. And 
David shows us it's the same between us and God. The necessity of relationship. After all, what is this psalm? It's a prayer. It's a, a deep, heartfelt prayer. And what is prayer? It is a conversation with God. It is a relational chat. It is a, 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 a discussion with Him. You can't have confession without prayer. Just like there can't be confession to another without a conversation. I.e. you can't have a relationship without communication. Whether that's sharing our joys or whether it's sharing our sorrows. Or in this case, sharing our offences. And then as well as it being a prayer, this psalm shows us the necessity of knowing God. In a relationship, we know who he is, his character. We know him. Just as God knows us down to the deepest part of our heart, so he reveals himself to us so we can know him. So, for example, verses 4 and 6, God is righteous in his verdicts and he's just in his judgments. He's holy. He's perfect. And his standards for us are actually no less than that. Do you know this about God? That he is perfection defined and that he demands our faithfulness and our obedience and our devotion. 100%. Because he's our creator and redeemer. And if that challenges us, consider the next one. Back in verse 1, David acknowledges that God is merciful. And he's compassionate. He acknowledges that God forgives sins. That's part of who he is. That's what he does. He forgives sins. Do you know that about God? That he finds a way to make up for our imperfection and our weakness and our unfaithfulness by reconciling both his justice and his mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. Or in verse 14. God is deliverer, that he's saviour. He sets us free from our guilt and our shame. Do you know this about him? That you don't have to live with your sin. You don't have to live with your guilt. You don't have to live with the ultimate consequences of the things that you do wrong every single day. Because God has sent Jesus to forgive us and to, to clean us. And to make us whiter than snow. Or in verse 10, that God can create new hearts. The same way he creates the universe. It's the same word that we find there as in Genesis 1 verse 1. Our creator can create and recreate at will. Anything. Anything. Do you know this about him, that he gives Jesus in order to recreate our hearts and our lives to make what is dead alive again? See, and the point here is that this knowledge of God, this relationship with God, that is what draws us to confession. That is what gets us there. It's not guilt in and of itself. That won't get us there. It's not regret or remorse in and of themselves. They won't get us there. 
characteristics of God. It's a relationship with Him. It's His always extended hand of invitation to know Him, to love Him, to be with Him. That is what gets us there. That is what pulls us towards repentance and confession. So I want to encourage you, keep coming back to this psalm. The characteristics of God. Look at all the psalms and what they say about God. Look at the whole word, whether you're on your own or you're together with others. others. Discover there the knowledge, the invitation and the relationship that guarantees restoration. That brings us to the last point, that repentance is a desire for a new heart. And this is where it moves beyond mere regret or remorse and where it couples inextricably with faith, which is the other side of the coin. It's owning the dead heart so that we can receive a new heart. It's like with a heart transplant. You have to want it. And you've got to kind of believe that it can work, that it's available. You've got to believe that it, it, it just can save you. And then you've got to sign up for it. And you've got to ultimately, most importantly, you've got to accept it. You've got to say to the doctors, yep, put me under, cut open my chest, make it happen. Because without this, I'm a goner. If you don't believe that it's possible or available, you're not going to do any of that stuff, are you? But if you do, new life may well be within your grasp. So what kind of heart is on offer here? Well, we've already talked about it being a new heart, which means it's a regenerated heart. That is, it's a living heart to replace our dead hearts. It's a resurrected heart. In Old Testament language, such as in Ezekiel chapter 36, God talks about it as being a heart of flesh, you know, beating alive, replacing a heart of stone, which is not alive. And a heart of stone also denoted that it was hard-hearted, but that it was hard because it was dead. As we say, you know, something stone cold, dead. It's like a tombstone. And we cannot really emphasize this enough. Regeneration is critical to our theology because it reminds us that we cannot do this work ourselves. We just can't. We can no more revive our hearts than a corpse can jump up and dance the Charleston. It can't happen. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are dead. Until God regenerates us. As we read in Ephesians 2, until he makes us alive in Christ. So it's a new heart. And it's also a clean heart. As David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Created me a clean heart, O oh God. Now, I have to admit, it's, uh, it's hard to think of a pig's heart as a clean heart. I don't know about you, but maybe for me, a little bit of Old Testament purity laws are seeping in. Pig, unclean animal, 
and can you go walking around with one of those hearts? Or maybe it's just a natural aversion to the idea of humans with animal hearts. And, I don't know, it just seems a little strange to me. But even if we're talking about human hearts in another person, they're not clean, are they? If you get a transplant, it's, it's second-hand. Yeah, it, it comes with use, probably with some good treatment and most likely with some bad treatment too. It's far from the cleansing that David refers to because that cleansing, he says, makes us whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. Now, snow is as white as you can get, but he says, whiter than that. Completely pure. This is not just a covering up of sin that he's talking about. He's talking about a blotting out of sin, which refers more to a complete ridding of sin, a banishing of sin. As Psalm 103 reminds us, our sin, it's it's removed from us as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. We're totally clean. Again, in that same Ezekiel passage, it says, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And this is what Jesus does for us. He makes us clean. He purifies us. He washes us by his blood. And counterintuitively, being washed in his blood makes us whiter than snow. It doesn't work in, in reality. You wash something in blood, it's not going to come out white. But theologically, that's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. So it's a regenerate heart. It's a clean heart. Thirdly, it's a broken and contrite heart. Now this sounds a bit contradictory, doesn't it? God gives us a new heart. He gives us a clean heart. But it's also broken. Didn't we just talk about needing to get it fixed? Well, in some ways, yes, it's broken before it's renewed. But in other ways, actually, this brokenness is an ongoing thing. It continues. Because the word contrite is about both humility and repentance. And that's an ongoing attitude. Even after we accept the new heart that Jesus gives us, we need to continually repent. We need to continually die to ourselves and live by and for Jesus. Israel had to be reminded of this all the time, that their sacrifices meant nothing without broken and contrite hearts, without humility and repentance. God says a number of times, he says, away from me with your filthy sacrifices. Really strong language. He says, it's a stench to me. It's like a rotting carcass of an animal. I don't want to smell that stuff if your hearts aren't in it. And it is the same for us. Jesus purifies our heart, but the Christian life is not defined by just religious disciplines or traditions. It's ongoing repentance and faith within relationship. Always dying to self. Always living to Christ. Take going to church. It's not just about sacrificing time and desire for the tradition of it, for the routine. 
It's about a contrite heart. It's about dying to ourselves, dying to our selfish indulgence and living for Jesus. Growing our faith in fellowship. Growing the faith of others. As we call to love them. Take reading the Bible. It's not just a discipline. It's not just some sacrificial ritual that you do. Christians read the Bible. No, it's about a contrite heart. It's acknowledging that our wisdom is failed. It is faulty. And so we seek the foolproof wisdom of God in His Scriptures. Take serving others. It's not just about ticking the charity box out of obligation. It is about a contrite heart seeking or seeing ourselves as the least. Putting ourselves in the least place and valuing the needs of others over ours, especially their salvation. And then when our hearts are broken and contrite, our gifts, our offerings are pleasing to God. That's what the last few verses of the psalm are talking about. Then there can be sacrifices made in Zion. Then and only then. And this brings me to the last thing, which is that the new heart is a praising heart. As we're told in Hebrews chapter 13, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess His name. And this praise, I want to say, means two things. It means praising as in thanksgiving and and rejoicing, celebrating, but also praising as in proclaiming, announcing, professing who God is to the world around us. So in verses 7 to 12, David mentions joy or gladness four times because renewal and forgiveness, it leads to joyful gratitude. Just like a wound for a patient who's received a new heart. So it is for us. We're ecstatic about this. We've got new lives. We should be over the moon. We've got new hearts. And then that gratitude and that joy moves us to tell people about it. Hey guys, I've got a new heart. Praise and proclamation. In verses 13 to 15, David talks about teaching sinners God's ways and and about singing of God's righteousness and about declaring God's praise. And even the sacrifices of verse 17 are thought to be public response. That private repentance is followed by public repentance. And I think that that's a really good reminder for us that our witness is not just about our hopes and our joys although this is essential and I think we ought to shout it from the proverbial rooftops you know I got a new heart I get to keep living I'm more alive than I've ever been before but it's also about witnessing our repentance witnessing our confession. There's a story in Donald uh, Miller's book, a book called Blue Like Jazz, which has always stuck with me. I read it years ago. And he talks about how he and some other Christians from uh, his uni campus, uh, basically the equivalent of, of what we know as CU here in Australia, 
during their orientation week in Portland, they put on this confession booth. But it was a, a very different thing. Instead of people coming into this confession booth and confessing their sins to some random Christian, people would come into this booth and instead they would listen to Christians confess the sins and failings of the church. And the sins and the failings of Christianity throughout history. And it's a powerful witness. Not just to faith, which is, I think, our default. If you believe, I believe. But to repentance, which is that other crucial side of the coin. Something's got to die if we're going to live. So if you are a believer, how can you share with other sinners your faith and your repentance? Certainly I think in our testimonies we do that, in our stories we include the ways that we die to self. I used to be this, but now I'm not. And that's good, that's really important. Perhaps we can do more, perhaps we can witness through small prayers of confession. If others hear our prayers, are we confessing publicly with them? Showing broken and contrite hearts. Maybe it is that we can talk more openly about the sins of the church. About the sins of Christians, of ourselves. In general, because we are sinners as bad as anyone else. And in so doing, modelling penitence. And of course pointing it all to the forgiveness, the cleansing, the renewal of Jesus. Declaring the praise of his glorious name because he offers us brand new, perfect hearts which last forever. I'd like us to take an opportunity now to have some silent prayer. Consider this psalm in depth. Perhaps you want to have it open uh, on your lap before you and just have some time of confession. Have some time of repentance. Have some time of quiet and just bring before whatever's on your heart before God. And then after that time of silence, I'm going to close with uh, a prayer from the Valley of Vision, Puritan prayer on purification. So why don't we just come before.
Lord Jesus, we are sinners. Grant that we might own that. Might grieve because of it. Might never be content with ourselves. And never think that we can reach a point of perfection or of fixing ourselves. We pray, Lord, kill our envy, command our tongues, and trample down ourselves. Give us grace to be holy, kind, gentle, pure, peaceable, to live for you and not for self, to copy your words, your acts, your spirit, to be transformed into your likeness, be dedicated wholly to you and to live entirely to your glory. Deliver us from attachment to sinful things, from wrong associations, from the predominance of evil desires, from the sugar of sin as well as its gall. That with self-loathing and deep contrition, earnest heart-searching, we may come to you and cast ourselves on you and trust in you and cry to you and be delivered by you. God, the eternal all, help us to know that all things are shadows, but you are substance. All things are quicksands, but you are mountain. All things are shifting, but you are our anchor. All things are ignorance, but you are wisdom. If our lives are to be a crucible amid burning heat, so be it. But Lord, do sit at the furnace mouth to watch that nothing is lost and that we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. If we sin willfully, grievously, in grace, take away our sorrow, our guilt. And give us joy. Remove our sackcloth and clothe us with beauty. Still our sighs and groans and fill our mouths with song. And then give us the joy of Christ as Christians. We pray in Jesus' name.